Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. Jamie, you already sound so sad. <laughs> you already sound so sad. Hey, the Thorns are playing uh, their first regular season game Did this weekend. Did you see T2? Did you see T2? Did you see T2? Yeah, T2 is great. Oh, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have this planning document in front of us. I know. We usually start with the Timbers. After our predictions the week before were so good. <laughs> our predictions are so bad. Yes, very bad. I, yeah. I refuse to say our predictions were bad. I think we had an accurate read on one of the teams, just not the team that we covered. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Jamie, when you said 2 nothing Timbers win last week, I was, I was with you, which is why I said Diego Valeri would break out of his slump, have a goal and an assist. And it was... Very evident very early in Saturday's game that we were going to be very wrong. Oh, yeah. What was it like being there and seeing... (laughs) I mean, I don't want to fill the show with me saying things like this, but to me, in watching the Timbers MLS era, it's the worst 45 minutes I can remember. Yeah, I... I can't think of one worse. I I think a few people, and I wasn't here for this, so this might be part of it. I wasn't here for 2012. That's the Dallas game. The really only the well, I was gonna say. I mean, people were bringing up today uh, Cal FC. Which one's worse? Yeah, and I don't know. I think there's some revisionist history about Cal FC because really that was just a team getting pummeled with shots, Cal FC, and then finding a way to score a goal. It was nothing like this one. The Five nothing loss in Dallas in 2012 also came up, but the difference in this game is that does anybody think San Jose is actually good? No, and I think uh, my prediction—I assume your prediction—was based. I mean, my prediction was based solely on that. Uh, I mean, the Timbers had you know started to turn a corner against um, the Galaxy. It looked like maybe, but it wasn't such a good performance that I that I thought against any team they were suddenly going to come out and get their win. Against San Jose, right? Who had scored two goals and conceded fourteen in four games, that seemed plausible. It did not happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. I think I wish I would have favorited this tweet. You see, a lot of people probably saw a version of this on Twitter. It was San Jose's first win in something like two hundred and twenty days. Yeah, that speaks for itself as to what this level of competition is. And I have no doubt that San Jose is going to continue to get better because that's the only direction a team like this can go in. But right now, almost the same thing could be said about the Timbers after this first five games of the season. This really feels like rock bottom. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it does. Uh, I, I think San Jose, obviously the Timbers lose 3 nothing to San Jose. I, I think San Jose had an expected goal total. If you, if you look at those stats of 3.3 or something, uh, a pretty yeah. awful statistic there. The Timbers conceded 13 shots on goal. Another really awful statistic there. We, we can go into more, more statistics, but before we 
do that, uh, let's just hit Tim's question, because I think this is an important one for all the fans moving forward. And it's, should we start drinking pregame or, or does that just make the depression worse? I'm not going to advocate for any kind of <laughs> alcoholism. However, if you can drink responsibly yes. and you take all the precautions as far as ride sharing or designated drivers are concerned, you just maybe don't want to stop drinking at this point. I mean, obviously that's a joke, but look, this it doesn't really get any worse as to how you feel about your team right now because there's so many uncertainties about what the team is doing and their ability to turn it around that pretty much it's Timbers change our mind at this point. And I'm sure we'll hit on it again and again, but Jamie, what would you say to Tim's suggestion? Are you as pro-alcohol as I seem to be? Because <laughs> Tim, to me, it's it, you should be drinking right now. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I was watching a Timbers game as a fan right now, I, I'd probably at least, uh, not at least, I'd have a beer before the game and then, you know, maybe another beer or two during the game. I, I would... Uh, I would have a little buzz going in the game just to, <laughs> just in case now, you it need goes to, away, it's gone. Right. You need to judge for yourself what kind of person you are. If you were going to be a worse person with yeah. alcohol in your system, <laughs> no, don't do it. If, if it's going to lighten the mood for you, if it's going to help you not take things as seriously, if it's going to make you a better person to be around as this is unfolding, then yes, have yeah, a beer. Make it, make it a social event. Make sure you're with some people, drinking some beers, things outside of soccer that you can focus on, conversations, you right. know, things like that if it if the games go how they've been going. But everybody has some tough decisions to make going forward. There are lineup <laughs> decisions. There are formation decisions. There are alcohol decisions that you have to make, and you always have to strive to make the best decisions out of those. And Tim, I think that's what we have to say to you. Just... Be your best self this coming Saturday. Everybody should try to be their best selves this coming <laughs> Saturday. And it's kind of generic advice that we probably should have to avoid the rest of the show because you put some numbers here on the sheet. Timbers have now lost four straight for just the second time since 2012. They're dead last in the league. They've conceded 15 times in five games. That's not the highest goals allowed total, but it's the worst goal rate yeah. in the league. They're the only team in the league that's allowing three goals per game. And their minus 10 goal difference is bad. Yeah, worse than the league, and, it, and very, very, very bad. There's there's no doubt about it right now. The Timbers are the worst team in Major League yes. Soccer. They played the second worst team in Major League Soccer. I don't think anybody came away <laughs> from that game on Saturday saying, wow, the San Jose Earthquakes are really good. I, I know there are a couple people that definitely think the Quakes are better than uh, we thought they were. Me personally, I don't. I still don't think the San Jose Earthquakes are that good. I just have to reevaluate where the Timbers are right now, and I think everybody that's been following the Timbers has to. Yeah, I, I think let's get into the specifics of San Jose. But before we do that, let's just hit a question from Mike, uh, which I, I, we, a few people asked something similar to this. Who should be held accountable for the Timbers being the worst team in MLS right now? Who shouldn't? This, when you have a team that is performing this poorly, it's not one thing. There are a lot of theories out there as to what's gone wrong. People are asking about the talent. That's a great question. People are asking about the tactics. That's a great question. Remarkable things don't happen unless a remarkable series of events happen, right? A lot remarkable set of circumstances contribute to it. The Timbers are in a remarkable state. If it was just players playing badly, it wouldn't be this bad. If it was just the wrong tactics, the wrong scheme, the wrong approach for games, it wouldn't be this bad. And if it was, oh, we made all the right roster decisions in the offseason and this is just what's happening, it wouldn't be this bad. I think it's Everything has to be examined at this point. Maybe in a month we'll feel differently. We'll feel like we were too harsh on things. But my general feeling is that, you know, I keep going back to a question from last week. We went 
the four starters they wanted to be, bring in and evaluated those like incomplete, 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 and then um, below, like, you know, at this point, not a good grade for the central defender acquisition. If the best you can say is incomplete, and I think we were fair there, well, you, you didn't do anything that in the offseason that's helping the team right now. And I think we can make similar evaluations towards almost any part of the organization at this point. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think, you know, people talk about Gavin Wilkinson, but he doesn't necessarily have to come out and talk to the media each week. Giovanni Savarese is sort of the face out there that has to address the media, has to be the one that sort of speaks for the team. But but it's both of them. It's the ownership. It's the, everyone in the front office. It's the players, absolutely. It's how they prepared for the season, what's going on right now. I mean, it, there's so many elements for a team to be this bad because the Timbers, I still believe, I mean, after this game, I, I still believe the Timbers are a more talented team than San Jose. Yeah. I still expect the Timbers to finish higher than San Jose in the standings this year. I, I think that there will be a point in which they play at least somewhat better. Um, because I, I think even if you're talking about this personnel not being good enough, and I think that is at this point uh, a completely fair question, and, and the Timbers didn't do anything at this point to get better in the offseason, uh, whereas other teams got a lot better and made some really big signings in the offseason. Um, but I, I still don't think the Timbers should be the very worst team in MLS, and so that's a player problem. That's a pers- that's a, pers- uh, a mentality problem. That's a coaching decision problem, and clearly they didn't do enough to get better to keep pace with the rest of the league, and, and that's a... Uh, a general manager office type problem. I mean, it's it's all over. Absolutely. And like we said, maybe like in a month or two months after we get out of this low point, we'll have a different perspective on it. But at this point, it feels like we're back to where we were three weeks ago where we're sitting here going, hey, no theory is a bad theory after you lose like that at FC Cincinnati. I think maybe there there are some bad theories. There are only so There's only so long we can say things like that and still have the same energy behind it. But there are very few bad theories at this point. And everything, I think, needs to be discussed, starting with getting down to some of the basics of what went wrong in San Jose. Michael asks, should we push the panic button yet, or is it too early? At what point will the hole be too big to dig out of? You go first, Jamie. Yeah, I said said during the game, push the panic button. I I am all for pushing the panic button at this point because this is is a run of form that fans of the organization should be panicking about this is the worst run of form that they've had since 2012 the, they they lost four games last year in a row the form was not nearly this bad um and so we haven't seen a timbers team like this since the year they fired their coach and had to overhaul the entire roster and the organization and really the whole approach to what they were doing i, I don't think this team's as bad as 2012 by a long shot but yeah this is something to panic about. This is an unacceptable run of form that Timbers have had, especially for the type of team they want to be. And there is a point in which the hole will be too big to dig out of. Um, I mean, if they end up, and they still have time to get out of it, but but it's not impossible. They have three tough games to close out April. I think they have some opportunities, if you're just looking at the schedule against Vancouver and Salt Lake in May, to maybe get that win on the road, but clearly not if they play like they did against San Jose. If they finish with two, three, four points after this stretch. That's basically saying the season's done. It's possible, but it's basically saying the season's done. To me, those those perspectives even seem too big picture at this point, even though you have to evaluate teams on their season goals and how they finish at the end of the season, and therefore you need to project out to that. When a team's bad, they're bad. And I've definitely seen people remind me of this and uh, or otherwise mentioned is like well they've been on the road you got to keep that in mind and 
you know, the team struggled on the road last year, and teams typically have struggled on the road. When teams are bad, they're bad. When teams in the past have struggled on the road because it's the road, they'll lose tough games, like the Timbers did last year. They lost the game in Orlando. That was a tough game to lose. Right now, that would be the team's best performance of the season or one of the two best performances of the season. I mean, we talked about a loss to LA as being the best performance of the season. Yeah. When the team is bad, it's bad. The Timbers were bad on Saturday in a way that transcends home road, transcends injuries, transcends lineup decisions. And you could just see it in the way that players reacted in the first half. The players reacted as if they're tired of being in this situation. And they no longer have any ideas of how to work through their problems on the field. The level of just kind of, ugh, this again from them when the goal started going in was just a reminder of how many times they have had to try to maintain some kind of fight in these situations. And it's absolutely partly their fault, if not mostly their fault, for being in these situations where they're allowing those goals. And they should react better than they did on Saturday. But it also reminds you that there are certain things here that just go well beyond, oh, it's, it's the opening road trip and we should have expected this. The team is performing at a level that nobody could have reasonably expected. And there needs to be whys. And Troy maybe gets to one of the whys. And he singles out one player. But I think we, should, we could single out other ones too. Troy asks, where is Valeri? Yeah. And you, you asked him straight out about this after the game. Yeah, I mean, I asked Valeri how he felt of, of his own performance, and, you know, he talked about the entire team, which is fair for him to say. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he's trying question. his best, yeah. and I don't think anybody doubts his effort. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I'm sure he is. I, I, I think we talked a lot about Valeri, and so I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit and then, then sort of what went wrong in San Jose as a whole. Um, yeah, where is Valeri? I, I mean, he is not, he's turning over the ball uh, too often, obviously. The third goal terrible goal to concede and it wasn't just Valeri but he (sighs) that play begins with Valeri turning over the ball in a bad spot in midfield and we've seen that way too much from Valeri this year um it was almost a really good entry pass into his own final thing (laughs) I mean that's that was I'm trying to think of a more discouraging goal that I can remember in Timbers history I mean there are places where there's a lack of physical execution there's places where things temporally feel like they were back-breaking goals and there are places where bad luck happens what happened there yeah no I mean it's just a clear individual error and Valeri is not playing at his best I think if you want to try to be optimistic about it last year I think he he wasn't this bad but he he definitely had a stretch for, for maybe the first two-thirds of the season almost where he wasn't that good, and then suddenly he came on in the end and was very important to the playoff run. So so maybe it's still in there. I, I mean, this this is six months different, or not even six months, really, December to, to now, I mean, where he was playing at a totally different level. Yeah. So maybe it turns. I, I don't know. Age is a factor. I don't know if this dropout this quickly is all about age, but... There, there is that factor. I mean, at some point, Valeri's going to hit a wall where he's not going to be the player he was. If that's now, I think given that the Timbers did so little this offseason, if you put Valeri has hit that point where he's no longer Valeri on top of that, they're clearly in real trouble. I mean, that's not something to get uh, passed easily. Um, but yeah, like you said, you could say this about a lot of players, and, I, and we can get to the next question a little bit that brings up another player, but um, the midfield wasn't good. I mean, I don't think Blanco and Chara had particularly good games. And at this point, they need to be the players having tremendous games every week for the Timbers to have any chance. Uh, I, I didn't think the attack did anything. 
Uh, and the defense was, was like once again disorganized and letting San Jose make passes all around the box, unmarked players. I mean, everywhere on the field right now, there are problems. And that's really concerning because it's not one simple thing that has to be fixed. It's everything. Troy's question singles out Diego Valeri. On one hand, like you just went through, you don't want to single out one player. But there's a player on this team that makes more money than most. There's a player on this team that takes up one of the three precious designated player spots. And there's also a player on this team that, through his own excellence ever since he got here in 2013, has earned the right to have high expectations. And really all we're talking about here is the fact that Diego Valeria isn't meeting those expectations I'm pretty sure he would agree with that, even if he might disagree as to the likelihood of him turning things around going into going forward. We talked about this a lot last week. I obviously made a prediction that felt that Diego Valeri would turn it around this weekend. He clearly didn't. I think the most worry thing, worrying thing for me is that when balls are being played to him and defenders close the space behind him and he has his back to Portland's goal, everything that happens at that point is negative. If you if you are within a foot of him, he no longer seems to have the foot speed to get around that player to make them pay for closing that space too quickly. And so we're almost at the point where the most positive scenario is him playing a negative ball back to Diego Chara or back to Jorge Morera or something like that. And you need more out of that position. I don't think it's totally a fail accompli that Diego Valeri is going to be the player that we've seen over the first five games of the season. But he can't be that player and still be the focal point of this team. And this kind of touches on something that I was thinking about before meeting up with you to do the podcast today. It feels like we are on the verge of saying the same things over and over again. Because we spent a lot of time last week talking about Diego Valeri. We've kind of moved on from dwelling on the central defense to talking about the fact that Central defense is being put in a situation to succeed, and they're not transcending that too. So in a way, some of these conversations are evolving. But the next evolution of this goes beyond just individual performances. It talks about things that are greater than that, the combinations of players or how they're being used or something that I focus on a lot this week. We continue to anchor our perceptions of these players in 2018. And for some of these players before that too, going all the way back to 2015. Uh, between 2015 and 2018, in three of those years, they either finished first in the West or won MLS Cup uh, or got to MLS Cup. So at what point does that not matter anymore? At what point is it actually counterintuitive or dis- or misleading to anchor our perceptions of Larry Smabiala on last year, on Diego Chara on last year, on Diego Valeri on last year? Well, it's, it's probably a player-for-player thing, right? Because not all of those people are... Um, failing to meet expectations in the same way or to the same degree. But at some point, all that matters is 2019, right? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about that as we're going forward, but it really is going to frame how we should talk about this team, whether that's how we talk about the team or not. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly the, the club framed it in how the players have done in the past or else they would have made different moves. Right. Um, so, so that's, which I think we'll get more into talking about personnel, uh, is where sort of why the the roster is as it is and how that's contributed to where they are now. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these players, and I'm going to bring in the next question because it sort of fits that exactly, are not living up to the expectations that we remember from from past years. And Eli says, why did Gio play Viafania on the weekend? I, I think this leads to two elements that, that I hope you can address because we talked about a little bit earlier. Why did he go back to bringing Viafania back in? And 
what's up with Viafania? Yeah, I think that this is a really great question because I think, I don't think uh, Giovanni Savarese is going to tell us anything but supportive of the player saying that he had faith that he picked the best team for San Jose. For me, a lot of this maybe comes down to the vision of what he thinks the best team could be for this year. And I think that vision, and I think this is evident by the roster construction, the decisions that the front office made during the offseason, involves having two fullbacks that can get forward in attack, provide that kind of width, and provide options that are kind of symmetrical on both sides of the field. So Jorge Villafaña clearly wasn't playing that well over the first three weeks of the season. He didn't play against the Galaxy. I know a lot of people picked out Zarek Valentin's performance in that, and defending-wise, I both agree and disagree. I think it's nuanced given what Valentin was asked to do in that game as far as being a midfielder in attack. But Viafania didn't make his claim a new claim this weekend. In fact, I think he probably only bolstered the idea that he's not one of the Timbers' top three or four fullbacks right now. And that's got to change in the future. I, I, you know, I don't think Jorge Moreira was that great this weekend either. But at this point, I honestly think that it's only an act of faith, really, that has somebody claim that Viafania should be starting over Valentin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Viafania is not playing like he did in 2015. The, the Viafania that I, I think Timbers fans would like to remember. He, he just simply hasn't been playing at that level. And he's a liability right now. Um, he's not the only player that's a liability right now. But he is a liability. And, and when you have another option like Zarek Valentin, I, I don't see... Uh, at this point in time, how you play Viafania over him. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, everything is kind of feeding into each other. Since the start of the season, central defense has been in focus. And I continue to be somebody that thinks that we have, we, that the Timbers have two or three good central defenders, maybe even two or three good central defenders. But you can't make an honest assessment about those players until you solve the problems at fullback. And stop exposing those guys. You can't make an honest assessment about the central defenders until you solve the midfield problems. Find people that can target Diego Chira. No matter the central defenders in this league, if you leave them on an island and allow people to attack them the way the central central defenders for the Timbers have been attacked this year, they're going to look bad. And I'm not saying that means that the Timber central defenders are good. I'm saying we kind of don't know at this point because everything around them has been a, a paper bag that has been ripped through constantly this season. Um, and maybe that f- feeds into a little bit of our next question, and this is based on uh, what what you asked Giovanni Savarese after the game in San Jose, and it speaks to something regarding the talent level of the team, which has been a constant point of conversation for fans for the last three or four weeks. Paul asks, how does Gio insinuating that he hasn't got the players he needs affect the dynamic between he him and the front office? So... There's a lot to unpack there. I'll, I'll just go ahead and let you do it by kind of adding a, an ancillary question. What was your perception of Giovanni Savarese's answer and what he was trying to get at with that? Because to me, the answer itself is vague. Yeah. I mean, I asked Gio directly, do, do, do you have the personnel to fix this, uh, essentially? Um, and his answer was is something along the lines of, we're going to work. Uh, you probably have it somewhere. I think. Yeah, I'll, exactly. I'll get it up so we can read I, it. I, I have it right here. Yeah. Um, I still have the, the quote sheet from the day <laughs> should here. have brought it up. He said, we, we try to do the work that we can to try to help as much as we can. Uh, I think it's vague. I, I think you could read that if you want as saying, well, he didn't come out and support the players there when he could have. I think you could read that as saying, 
he's just sort of throwing up his hands and saying, we're, we're working. We're trying to work through this. So I'm not necessarily assuming that Giovanni Sarossi was insinuating uh, that he doesn't have the players he needs. Yeah. And so I don't think there was some sort of public announcement where the front office is suddenly wondering why Gio said that and now a relationship is broken because of that. Now, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And that's much more where that relationship could ha- be tense or not tense. Or I, I, I mean, I'm sure that there's tension going on behind the scenes just because it, this is people's jobs. I mean, <laughs> this is people's jobs are on the line. This is not good enough. There, there's no way that it's just uh, happy-go-lucky in the Timbers front office right now. Um, I, I, I think there are real questions about the personnel. I think whether or not Giovanni Savaresi was trying to insinuate that, whether or not he feels that way and doesn't want to say it out loud or, or anything like that. There clearly are questions about the personnel. As we've said, the Timbers clearly mm-hmm. didn't do enough in the off season and whether they have the group that is going to be capable of turning this around is really up in the air right now. Yeah. We try to do the work that we can to try to help as much as we can. So the, we there is clearly the coaching staff in each of the cases. We as the coaches try to do the work that we, the coaches, can to try to help as much as we can. When I read that, basically what I take from it, and I agree, this is a complete Rorschach test. You can read into this whatever you want. I think that he's basically saying we do the work that we can to try to get the players performing the best that they can. And I think that's all he's saying. I think he's pretty intentionally trying to avoid saying anything positive or negative about the players. I think this is a pretty neutral comment, and as we see often with Giovanni Savarese, if he's, if he's not intent on answering your question, he's going to find a way not to yeah. answer it. And I think this is basically saying, look, it, it can be interpreted like this. We do have the players, and we're trying to get them to that level. Or it could be interpreted as, as we don't have the players, but we're trying to do the best that we can. Or it can be interpreted as, I kind of don't want to answer your question. <laughs> so I think it's interesting, Paul. I think you can, we can look at this at all of those ways, but I think ultimately... Um, if, we're, if we're thinking about this in terms of Giovanni Savarese's intent, the intent to be vague, I think, is what comes, <laughs> comes out there most. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and get to the question we've danced around a little bit. Let's let Mark's words answer the question. It seems obvious that we have not done enough to prepare for the season. With the pieces we have, how do we inspire and build? So implicit in that, is that is something that you've said a couple times, and I've hinted at that the off season didn't go well. The decisions that were made during the off season uh, aren't working right now. I think you and I can both agree on that. Yes. They aren't working right <laughs> now. I think you know, like we did last week, you can go decision by decision and justify three out of the four. I think, regardless, it is a contributing factor to where the Timbers are now. So, uh, with the pieces that the Timbers have, how do they inspire and build? What's, yeah. what's your formula for renewed success, Jamie Goldberg? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it's easy. I, I, I think it's very easy at this point. As you were pointing, talking about earlier, when the players conceded a goal, you, you can decide to see their faces drop, see the mentality there. It, it's difficult when, you've, when you're a player and you find yourself back in the same situation week after week. So I don't think it's easy to get the players in. And Giovanni Sarresi also didn't really answer my question on this either, but um, to get the players in a place where they're confident, where they have the right mentality, uh, going into the next game. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen. And, and I think that more so than, than necessarily talent, totally talent alone or anything like that is often what sinks teams that, that sort of have a bad start or have a bad string of games. And then that just spirals out of control. Um, 
I think in the past, the Timbers have done a relatively good job at, at finding a way to sort of keep the atmosphere um, in training uh, in a good situation, keep players happy. We've seen that, and I think we've talked about it a lot, that even after losses, we go to training, and it seems like the players are enjoying themselves. I'm really interested to see if that stays the same way at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think... I think at this point, the Timbers really, Gavin Wilkinson should be on the phone right now looking to see what moves he can make before this transfer window. Because I, I think, how, given how bad they've been, uh, I, I think it would at least maybe be a step in the right direction to try to bring in a defender now, try to maybe see if we can get that, they can get that DP deal done um, before May 7th, uh, try to just inject some new blood into this team. But it's hard. I, I don't know. If they stick with the players that they have right now, they don't make a change for the transfer window, and they just hope that with tactics and training, which they've been doing, and trying to get the players to have the right mentality going back on the road, yeah, it's it's not going to be easy. No, it's not going to be easy. You know, when you were describing the player reactions, we both have talked about that at this point. One of the things I wrote down in my notes on Saturday was there seems to be a lack of faith in the ability to find solutions. There just isn't the energy in the team when something bad happens to fight or to work to find solutions. And that's a big thing when you're trying to coach soccer teams. You want to enable them to work through their problems on the field. I mean, it's not like basketball where you get timeouts and you can draw plays or tell them what's going on. You can shout instructions for the sidelines. But for the most part, the players have to be enabled with a philosophy and a style and a decision-making process that can find solutions to troubles during the run of play. And it just didn't even seem like they were searching for solutions. So it's one thing to like try to find solutions and continue to do things that aren't working. It's another thing to not have faith in the group of 11's ability to find those solutions. So Giovanni Savarese almost says it every week. I, I have a lot of faith in the players. I still trust them 100%. I think that's clear because he keeps... He keeps selecting some players that he has faith is going to turn around their performance. Now, the question is, do the players have faith in each other? And if so, then why didn't we see that on Saturday? So I think that, like you said, Gavin Wilkinson needs to be exploring options. Everybody in the team needs to be exploring options from bringing in new players, from trading players, to changing the approach, changing the style, changing the... You know, you always hear coaches talk about principles whenever you bring up formations. Oh, we're going to change the formation, but our principles need to be the, are going to stay the same. The principles need to be questioned at this yeah. point. So I think maybe that leads to the next question on here, that, which isn't a listener question, but one that we've been talking about, I think, ever since the LAFC game. Should the Timbers abandon the 4-2-3-1 formation? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, at this point, maybe they'll go back to it. Maybe it'll be like last season, but at this point... Absolutely. If I see yeah. the four two three one against Dallas, I, I think I'm going to. You're already just going to start writing your article. Yeah, throw my laptop across the across the room. The, the, uh, yeah, this. Uh, I was about <laughs> to say the small press box in Dallas. It's not small. It's just the the press rows are kind of cramped, and they devote a lot of space to television and radio. <laughs> but again, this is something that we've said over and over again, or at least I feel like it. I don't think this team should be anything playing anything but a true three person midfield at this point. I think they should be throwing numbers at that problem. They tried basically a two-person midfield for four of the out of five of these games with Charan Guzman there, or I guess it would be three out of five of these games that they've done that. And the other two-man midfield was Paredes and Tuiloma. I just don't, I don't understand. I guess why? Well, I do understand it. 
you, you want to believe the thing that has worked in the past is going to work now. But if there's one place that this team actually has some reasonable depth, not of star options beyond Diego Chara, of people that can be put in there and do a reasonable MLS job, it's central midfield. I mean, nobody right now thinks that Christian Paredes is a world beater or Andres Flores, or even if you think that Renzo Zambrano has been so impressive at T2 that he's going to come and be an all-star level player. But these are viable options, at least, to stabilize a team or to give a try. And so for me... Whether you play five at the back, uh, two two central defenders, three central defenders, one striker, two strikers, pure wingers, no number 10, I'm putting three central midfielders in my formation bef- before I put anything else on paper. I just, I just think they're... I, I mean, the 5-3-2 worked well enough against the Galaxy. I, I protect the back line. Yeah. Try to at least shore up the midfield. Just focus on that. And if you're playing for a tie, play for a tie. Because yeah. they need something. They need a performance... Uh, that they can be proud of. And, you know, they. it seems like they were proud of that Galaxy performance, but it was a loss. Yeah, They need a result. They need a performance they can be proud of. And I, the four two three one is just way, way, way too risky right now. Just go back to like a five three two and just try to get a draw. Yeah, just start inching forward from that, <laughs> yeah. address your problems. The five three two put in a performance that I think would have beat San Jose. I do Probably. S- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I do see the logic of saying, hey, this is San Jose. Let's put our best foot forward. This is a game we should be uh, we should be controlling. It didn't happen. You should learn from that and say, we can't assume we can control any game right now. Let's go from the, let's start with the basics and build forward. Mike, the last question that we have here before we start looking forward a little bit or maybe start shifting tact a little bit. Mike asks, will the Timbers admit that they need to make a move in defense, not saying on defense, in defense and sign someone of Ridgewell's caliber. I have a lot of answers for this. <laughs> I mean, I, I think what I think would be really helpful right now is making a move to sign a Ridgewell type player or, or Nap Borchers type player, um, a veteran who can not only come in and be a consistent person on the back line, but just be that leader in the locker room on the field, vocal, not allow their teams to, to sort of, you know, cave after conceding a goal. Um, I mean, a Will Johnson type, but I, I think probably defender is still Will Johnson type personality, but hmm. I'm still thinking more of a defender side. I mean, someone like that, I mean, Jack yeah. Jewsbury, even. I mean, someone that just brings that leadership on the field and in the locker room and is going to stand up to the team and be the person that's going to say, hey, this is what's going on. And maybe they have that, but I haven't seen it. Well, I know where they can sign a Jack Jewsbury type. He's on the fourth floor of Providence <laughs> Park. I mean, I'm going to stick with my my thing of saying that like we we need more answers regarding the central defense, and that starts with giving them a platform where their failures can actually be put on them. And right now, I'm not convinced that's the case at all. And that's a little bit worrisome because you should have some answers to things right now. But the fullback play and the midfield play at this point has been such that I don't know that it's fair to indict the central defense. That being said, missing Liam Ridgewell does seem to be a factor. But I think we forget also that in the playoffs, away at Atlanta, away at Kansas City, away at Seattle, they gave up multiple goals in all those games. Regular season, away at Minnesota, away at New York Red Bulls. They looked terrible in those games. Liam Ridgewell had health issues. He wasn't consistent, particularly on the road. Yeah, he was much worse on the road. But he did have high points. 
I'm not exactly sure how much better this team would be if Liam Ridgewell was here right now. They would be better. But I also think that it's entirely possible that Liam Ridgewell, after games, would just be saying, bloody hell, we can't have people firing the ball in from here. <laughs> like, if you put Liam Ridgewell at the edge of a six-yard box with people firing balls across, you know, at full speed to the penalty spot or across the face of goal, he's going to look a little better than the guys in place right now, but it's still going to be a problem. That's, that's my theory. So, Mike, I and maybe, Jamie, this is the way to go. If I were to prioritize the needs of the team right now, I would say central midfield. I think those. I think that there are internal solutions they should try first. Then, I would almost say fullback, but again, I think you almost given that you've acquired two TAM level fullbacks, you've re-signed another fullback, and then you've had a homegrown player that actually needs time at fullback too. Kind of need to make a trade if you yeah, want that to happen. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think you can allocate more resources to that spot. So after central midfield, where I think you could because you can play different ways in there, maybe get a player that has some versatility. Even though well, you, you can of, sign a Will Johnson type. You can sign a Will Johnson <laughs> type. Yes, you can. I think after that, the DP striker or attacker. strike. We always say DP striker, but we know that this is not going to be a pure number nine. It's going to be somebody that can play multiple places. That would be then. And then I would do central defense because just like fullback, we're saying, oh, you have two TAM level players. You have XX. Look, in central defense, you have two TAM level players in Cascante and Maviala. You've got a third TAM level player in Claude Dielna, too. You've got Bill Tuiloma, who's played the best out of all those guys. <laughs> and quite frankly, I don't think Mo Jadama is going to be a great MLS player, but I think he could be an average MLS player. And. I mean, are you going to go out and continue to throw more money at one spot on the roster? Because if you solve that problem with a big expenditure, then you now have an inability to go out and get a striker. Or you have an inability to address the next problem that comes up. At some point, I think you just have to rely on internal solutions. But, Jamie, rank those for me. Rank what you think are the biggest needs. (laughs) Jamie's kind of rolling her eyes a little bit at me. Like, Um, I really don't appreciate having to make up an answer on the spot when I would like to devote some thought to this. Yeah, it's... It's really hard because I think there are need. I think there are holes uh, in multiple places on the field, and that's what I, I think I talked about. In my takeaways: the concerning part here is not that you can say the defense is terrible, or with, uh, bring this up with the thorns. I'm sure Mark Carson doesn't appreciate this because I bring it up a lot, but the the individual errors are the reason why the defense is bad. That was terrible for the thorns last year in terms of results, but right. it was sort of a simple fix. You just you have the personnel. You got to find yeah. a way to, to deal with this. There, there's really questions about that, but it's it's one area of the field, and you know exactly what's going on, and you have to figure out how to fix it. This is every position. It's, it seems like I, I mean, maybe not Blanco and Charas, but definitely last game. Uh, it yeah. no. it's pretty much every position right now, and yeah, I, I still think they absolutely. I mean. We don't give up on the attack because the attack's been not good. Five goals in, in five games, three of those coming in the first game. They're, yeah. they're not creating chances. So even if the defense was doing better, look at the LA Galaxy game. It's not like they were able to score more than one goal there. Um, so yeah, I still think they need the attacker. And I still think that's where they need to allocate those resources because they could get TAM-level players in other positions. Yeah, I, I, I would make a move at central defense. Um, I just bring in a leadership-type person that can just shore up yeah. the back line. Um, and I, I sort of agree that you might want to try some internal options at, at uh, central midfield first. Yeah, just I, take Guzman off. I was kind of talking myself into that. To who be else? With you. Just get get Guzman off the field and see who else can play alongside Chara. Yeah. The Thorns example is a great one because 
like you said, and Mark Parsons was pretty open about this last year. You know, it's three or four games into the season. They say, we've already made more big mistakes this year than we made the last two years combined. And nobody looked at that team and went, oh my God, the Emilys aren't good. It's more like, what's going on with the Emilys? We don't have that level of kind of prolonged faith in Larry Smalbiala, Julio Cascante, Bill Tuilama. But it does feel the same where it's just like, these are just breakdowns. What's going on here? What's going on with like the team defense? So... I, like I said, I'm not. This is the third time I say it. I'll, I won't say it again. The show. I'm not saying that the central defenders should be considered good. I think there's a context to the analysis right now that is not fair to the central defenders, and it's ultimately could possibly lead to some bad conclusions. So solve the other problems, give the central defenders something to work with, and if they're still not performing, you know, there was. One, well, two, I would think, very small silver linings this weekend. One was the performance of Jeff Atnella. And yeah. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a testament to him throughout these five weeks. I think very rarely have we talked about Jeff Atnella. I think there was one moment a couple shows ago that I said, you know, if we're talking about communication problems, we have to at least consider that Jeff Atnella might have to do something more. And partly because he brought it up himself. Yeah. The other small silver lining was Foster Langsdorf <laughs> being in the 18. Yeah. Getting basically, what was it, half an hour time? Around, uh, half, an around half an hour and just down the street from where he went to college too. Yes. And four days after I was on the show explaining why Foster Langsdorf wasn't getting time in the team. Obviously things significantly changed. I think it's fair to say some faith was lost in Lucas Milano. He wasn't in the 18. As some people on social media, though, not he, travel. He, he, he did not travel. <laughs> um, but one thing I did was ask people to get in touch with me if they had some lo- some argument as to why Foster Langsdorf should be getting more time. I want to thank everybody for being in touch. There were two people that honestly got in touch with me first, and I didn't want to read out seven or eight DMs for this. But I want to read this out because I promised I would read it. Uh, Tim, he said, the conversation about this issue this year seems eerily similar to the conversation last year when Espria was getting minutes ahead of Jabo, i.e. clearly the coaches see something in training to elevate Dyron over Jeremy. T2 production may not translate. There are still things to work on, etc. My question is, do you think this progress, uh, this will progress, this issue will progress similarly to last year when by the end of the year, Jabo had made improvements necessary to overtake Espria and Armenteros on the depth chart? So obviously a different context here because Foster now has time. But I want to throw this at you and see what you say because I think one of the big factors this year is now that, you know, I think Lucas Milano's performance makes this different from last year where at least Samuel Armenteros at this point of the year was performing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point they're still going to bring in a DP striker and that's going to change the entire depth chart there. I don't think Lucas Mono showed any reason to be in the 18 right now. And I, I think that Foster's the least deserving of, of a chance. I, I think, yeah, if he improves over time, this could be similar to how it was with the Bobis last year. I, I think the difference is Foster probably has more opportunities to get these mitts now uh, simply because there's not really a reason to play Milano over him, um, at least in terms of Milano's own perform- performance. There's not really a reason to play Milano over for number three. It doesn't necessarily need to be Foster Langsdorf. Um, but later in the season, I, I think the forward depth chart is going to look different. I, I would be shocked if this team isn't making a move at, at that position at some point. Ooh. Yeah, the idea of reaching August, uh, September, <laughs> without that designated player attacker that... 
that Gavin Wilkinson has been talking about since the middle of December. So that would need an explanation yeah. if that's the case. Uh, but a lot of what you said dovetails into the last message that I'll meet, read. It's from Summer. And then since you answered it, I'm going to kind of take this in another direction. She said, I know you, Richard, said Foster has stuff to work on, which is why he's still on T2, but how could he be worse than Lucas? That being said, why start Lucas over Espria? Espria makes me crazy, but he's had more successes than Lucas. Lucas just doesn't look confident in the field. After his missed opportunity on Sunday in LA, he just stood there. We need to acknowledge some people just practice well, and when it comes down to the game, they cannot deliver, and the converse applies as well. Lucas is not getting better. I don't see how we can do worse with Foster. At some point, we have to push him into the big boy pool. And it's that last sentiment I want to ask you about because Giovanni Savarese and to a certain extent other people in the organization have taken pains to say, as you ask questions about this last year, that they don't want to rush him. That they don't want to burn a prospect just because the first team needs them. So what does it say to you that in this time of need in the 18 that Foster Langsdorf is getting surprised playing time? Yeah, I, I mean, it could say that. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that they've seen progress in Foster Langsdorf from last year. I'd be shocked if they hadn't. I, I mean, he obviously had a really good season at, right. at T2 and shown well. And so I think it speaks to progress. But I, I do think at some point you don't want to burn a prospect. But at some point when, when you only have so many options, you sort of face a choice there. And, and the Timbers don't want to stay at the same place they are right now. And, and I think that means that they have to try new things. And I, I think part of that was saying, yeah, M- Milano's not effective. Foster's been working really hard. Foster clearly understands what he needs to do better and has been trying very hard. I mean, the amount we see him trying after practice and things like that to get to that point, give him the opportunity. Yeah, there's certainly a logic to that. It's a logic to the other view too, but as you kind of implied, sometimes one of the arguments has to compromise a little bit. And so maybe there is a middle ground where you can give Foster some time without completely burning him. Maybe this isn't an every week thing too. Maybe it was the circumstances this week with Andy Polo being unavailable because of his calf injury. At the same time, I don't think any of us doubt that there seems to be a change going on in the forward depth chart, which also makes it even more important that the designated player search get concluded here soon. Because if you if we're sitting here two months ago and it's like, oh, Lucas Milano looks better in preseason. By the way, let's never even care about how players look in preseason yeah, again, yeah. right? Oh, Lucas. So like they have a couple of options. Maybe they can survive. Now things have changed. It seems to make it more important that they resolve this as soon as possible. All right, Jamie, let's shift focus here. Let's talk about FC Dallas. For people that watch this weekend, Dallas was in Philadelphia, had a one nothing lead for much of that game off of a Reto Zeigler direct kick. That was a great kick. But at the end of the game, uh, Philadelphia Union come back for a 2-1 uh, victory. Dallas is 3-2-1. Uh, as you have here in the notes, they have seven points in three games at home, so they haven't lost there yet. But they are a different team. Oscar Perea isn't there anymore. A number of veterans have uh, left the team. And as they have continuously done seemingly over the last eight years, they've brought through two or three more uh, talents from their academy system. Jamie, let's just start with something very basic. What hope do the Timbers have for this game? I, I think with a change of formation, <laughs> they can potentially put in a performance like they did against the Galaxy and put themselves in a position to get a result. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that that's sort of the 
that's the full amount of hope I feel going to this game. We could see a completely different Timbers team. Something could ship over this week, uh, but they don't have the extra time to sort of prepare um, as they did before the LA game. They don't have sort of the uh, time to be able to come home into a comfortable environment. I don't really see why this week's going to be so much different than any other week. It could be. It's MLS. Um, but yeah, the, ol- the only hope that the only thing that gives me hope going to this game is because that I think there's going to be a completely different tactics than we saw last game, and, and it's going to be set up to put the Timbers in a position to be competitive. I completely agree. The only reason for hope that I- comes to mind right now, beyond the idea that they- that players can just play better, that's obvious. I guess it needs to be sent once. <laughs> But the idea that the Timbers have had a very severe wake-up call. And just all of us watching sports over the years, we know that teams do respond to these things yeah. sometimes. So I would definitely be looking at the Timbers timeline an hour before the game to see if there are significant personnel changes. There should be. And if they aren't, then, yeah, I think that everybody should wonder, are, are we going to do this again are we going to hope that these <laughs> players are just going to suddenly shift gears and if so the first question in your mind is like should be what happened during the last four or five days to put this 11 back in this position and that feeds into ryan's question ryan asks is it finally time for geo to make massive changes and play the kids a lot, a lot of people ask this whether it's time to just play the kids and, yeah. and I, I think there is sort of a range here. I, I don't think it's time to say, all right, season done. Let's just play uh, our T2 prospects type right. thing. Um, just take all the MLS players out, have players that are going to try really hard and run around and um, clearly going to have the right mentality probably going in there because they're trying to impress, but are probably not good enough to, to be competitive at the MLS level as a collective 11. Right. I don't think, I don't think we're at that point yet because – it's a long season, and as bad as it's been, it's only five games in. The Timbers right. still have to have hope that they can salvage this season. I think that's going to be something that potentially comes later in the year when they, they're fully out of it, if that happens. In terms of massive changes, there better be changes. There, there better be some lineup changes this week, and just to say, hey, your job's on the line. I, I mean, there's, no one should be comfortable that Gio is just going to put them in the lineup uh, because they've been in the lineup before. And so I expect some uh, lineup changes. I, I think there has to be a balance with having enough players that Geo thinks is, are going to get the job done and making a few ch- tweaks in, in positions where they, he just hasn't seen anything from the players that have been out there to make sure the Timbers are competitive um, and, and do have a chance to get a result because they absolutely need a result. Uh, but yeah, I don't think you just go and write off the season and play the kids at this point. I think I agree with you there. I also think almost any quote-unquote kid that we can bring up as far as people that are signed to MLS contracts could probably step in in the right combination of players and move the team forward. I mean, the bar is pretty low right now. But if you're telling me somebody like Renzo Zambrano, who has not gotten a minute yet of MLS action, if you're telling me that the Timbers are so good right now that he can't step in and improve the team, I'm calling BS on that. And you just go player for player. Eric Williamson, I think you have to have Eric in a very specific setup at MLS level right now in order for him to succeed. But playing that setup, I don't think it would be a bad idea compared to what we've seen. Like if he were a number eight along with another number eight and three man midfield, I think he can actually, he can definitely be an average or positive player at MLS level. I think you can say the same thing about Thomas Konechny, Christian Paredes, Marvin Loria if he's healthy. 
there are a lot of players that can step in. I mean, the way the fullbacks are playing right now, Marco Farfan, too, needs to be in this conversation. I don't think that you just play the kids for the sake of playing the kids. I don't think any team should ever do that, to be honest with you. But the kids that the team have are good players. And I think they need to be in the conversation at this point. Uh, in which maybe you and I can both just pick one to answer Paul's question here. Which Timbers bench player slash T2 player without a start this year is most likely to get one next game? So our prediction segment here early. I know. Um, most likely. So this you're not saying that this person will. They're just most likely. I, I guess I would I would go with uh, Marco Farfan. I, I think that uh, clearly Viafania is not going to be in there. Maybe Zarek Valentin is, but maybe even Zarek Valentin is going to be at right back and Marco Farfan is going to be at left back. Yeah, I, I mean, Maria did not have a good game, as, as you said, and so that might be a position to say we're going to look completely different at fullback this weekend. Yeah, I would say this is kind of a cop-out because we've seen him come off the bench three times this year, so he's clearly not that far from starting. I would say Tomas Konechny is the safest bet here. But if we're talking about somebody who isn't kind of in the view of the team right now, as far as somebody that um, isn't consistently making 18s, I guess I would bet on Renzo Zambrano just because that's an area of need right now. He's got the experience from playing in Spain. He's 24 years old. He offers an element of possession and the ability to play the ball forward that we're seeing is lacking a little bit in the team right now. So kind of putting everything together, I would say connect me. And if you think that's too easy, uh, then I would go with Renzo Zambrano. But you, just from what I'm saying right here, as far as midfield formations, what they might need as far as qualities, it implies a game plan, a view of the next game, an approach. What, is, what does the team need to do? Yeah. Uh, I, like I've said, I, I think we're going to see maybe a 5-3-2 here again. I think we're going to see a similar game plan to what they had against the Galaxy uh, because it was effective enough against the Galaxy, and I, I think it did a better job protecting the back line. Uh, Mabiala will be part of this game, so I think that clearly he's going to be in there as a center back, which would, would be helpful. I wouldn't be surprised to see Diego Larry set this one out, though. Yeah, I think five three two or four three two one. These are the these were the safety blanket formations yeah. last year, uh, and for me, those are both fine because they're three three man midfields. Again, I just think you have to play three at this point, and then hopefully by the end of the year, you've built some kind of confidence in another midfielder that maybe you can go back to Chara and a partner. I just it's just not there yet. Uh, the final question is, how about that? Oh, yeah, positive question. Andrew asks, how about that T2 comeback? How about that T2 comeback <laughs> in Oklahoma City? A little uh, a little Oklahoma City energy rug-assisted goal there at the end from Ryan Sierkowski to steal the game late. Uh, T2, third win of the year in five games. They have 10 points. Uh, the best team active in the Portland organization right yeah, now. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I include the question, but somebody asked, uh, I, I think, why would Foster Langsdorf want to play for like for a, team, uh, for a team like the Timbers when he can play for T2? Yeah, and then somebody asked me that I also didn't include, uh, is there any rule that prevents calling up every T2 player as well as Cameron Knowles for this week? <laughs> so uh, there are rules against that, but maybe there shouldn't be. No. Um, Obviously, the Timbers have to work through their problems with the talent that they have, but a lot of that talent crosses over with T2. And I think that's one thing that I've been semi-joking about the last couple of days is, you know, 
what's going on with the Timbers might actually end up hurting a really strong start for T2 yeah. because a lot of these T2 guys might end up being the solutions at the next level. But, you know, such as the virtues of having an organization like this, such as the virtues of continuing to invest in T2, and unfortunately those virtues are designed to pay off at the MLS level. Jamie, let's put MLS on the side burner for a bit because we have another league coming into action here in the next four or five days. NWSL season is finally yeah. here <laughs> on Sunday, 2 p.m. on Yahoo streaming service. The Thorns are going to be at Orlando. Uh, Thor- the Thorns have historically done pretty well in Orlando. They've done really well containing their ex-star, Alex Morgan. Uh, what do the Thorns do in this game to get a win? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if the Thorns can can sort of go back to the defensive form that they had at times last season and have had, uh, you know, really 2016, 2017, um, with the attack that they're going to have, I, I mean, they should have their uh, international players back. Um, as long as the defense is solid, I, I, I'm pretty confident of the Thorns' chances in this game. Uh, I We'll get to it in a minute, but they'll be without Emily Menges. Uh, so obviously there there is sort of that question mark at center back for them, but but they have enough players that have been there on that back line in this team that I am confident that they can have a good defensive performance, and as, that's sort of the key for me. Keep it solid, organized on defense, and I, I would have a lot of faith in the attack to do the rest. Yeah, it's almost the theme of the show. I mean, even though, to me, the Thorns are going to be missing their most important defender, uh, their goalkeeper didn't play a minute in the preseason because of her injury situation, Adriana French. I think we saw enough in the preseason, and again, we should we should never count anything we see in this preseason as yeah, something. I, I was just talking about last year. Right. I'm like, I'm pretending preseason doesn't I mean, exist now. But okay, the way they're approaching this <laughs> mentality wise, I think I don't I don't want to speak for you, but there is this feeling that they realize that last year was something that they have to be very concerned about, and they're not approaching that concern by throwing by trading for new defenders or trying to solve a personnel problem because they don't believe there's a personnel problem. They are saying the personnel that we have here is capable of doing this. Let's do this. And I actually, at this point, almost expect the defense to be better because, they one, they've done it before, and two, they really, really seem to sincerely believe that they screwed up last year and they're intent on fixing it. So Mark Parsons always says that the first game of the year is going to be chaos. So is that what you're expecting from this game? What do you, what do you think of Mark's assessment? I think part of the chaos factor is that the Thorns, when they play on the road, kind of let the chaos happen. Like they, There is a mentality within Parsons' teams on the road that when we play on the road, these games are going to be tough. Let's not be afraid to play them tough. We don't necessarily have to play our soccer. We can play our soccer at home. We should look for opportunities to, but let's also not be afraid to to really get down and grind with the Orlando's, Washington, Sky Blues, every team. Let's we don't have to be pretty here. We're trying to get a result. So I think it's almost a self fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> and so what I expect is this to be a tough game where the Thorns are going to be be okay with not playing their brand of soccer and be okay with grinding out a result. I, I want to hear. What you think, too. What do you think about the whole theory of self-fulfilling prophecy about the early season chaos? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought too much about that, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that clearly teams in their first game are never going to be as good as they are in their second, their fifth, and their tenth game. And I think going into 
to the first game. I mean, especially for the Thorns going against an Orlando team with a new coach. I mean, a lot of it is that they don't know what they're going to expect. They're going to potentially have to adjust to the game. They're going to have to make um, changes on the fly and sort of take what the game gives them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Mark says it every year and it does seem like there's chaos every year uh, in that first game of the season. So I, I kind of like your idea of a self fulfilling prophecy let's go to jeffrey's question jeffrey says what is your predicted starting 11 for the thorns on saturday will any internationals be missing so we can answer the last question right now no internationals are expected to be missing and the starting 11 let's let's approach it from this point of view because i think we we almost know what the starting 11 would be in a world of perfect health the Adriana French would be starting a goal. The back line would be Megan Klingenberg, Emily Menges, Emily Sonnet, and uh, Ellie Carpenter. Two deepest midfielders would be Lindsay Horan and Celeste Bure. You'd have Christine Sinclair in front of them. To the left, Tobin Heath. Up top, Caitlin Ford. And on the right, it'd be either Haley Rosso or Anna Cernogorsevich. We've already talked about one difference that's going to happen. Emily Menges is not going to be playing. What other changes do you expect for Sunday's eleven? Yeah, I don't know if I really expect others. Um, I, I think that for the Emily Menges situation, I, I think the most likely option, assuming she's uh, good to go, and I, I think that's what Mark Preston said, if I'm remembering correctly, um, from today's press conference, is just putting Catherine Reynolds in that position and leaving Ellie Carpenter where where uh, where she is on the pitch. I think Adriana France should be ready to go. Um, and obviously, if not, that would be a, a Brit, Brit extra for Adriana France. That's a pretty simple one. Um I think we're probably more likely to see Anna Cernogorjevic. Haley Rosso's been coming off injury. I, I would think that we'll see her off the bench um, more likely. But uh, Mark also said she was good to go, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I agree. I think that if we assume that both Haley Rosso and Anna Cernogorjevic are both good to go, well, Anna Cernogorjevic did see time with the team in games during the preseason. Haley Rosso has not. Haley Rosso did get time with Australia, but it would seem like on the road in the first game of the season where you're expecting some chaos and maybe you want that defensive solidity and the um, not that Haley Rosso lacks a physical presence, but somebody like Anna Cernogorjevic there, I think that uh, I think that it makes sense to play Anna 60 and Haley Rosso 30. Just just a guess on my part. Uh, you talked through some of the injury updates. Uh, I think we've pretty much covered all of them here. Emily Menga's out. You just implied that Kath Reynolds is going to be fully available for selection. We talked about Haley Rosso. Mitch Purse. Haven't talked about Mitch Purse. Um, I think And Mark addressed it too. <laughs> he said it would be he said it would be touch and go. There we go. Which doesn't actually help. So people who watch the preseason tournament may have known that Mitch Purse did not play there. She has been working through an upper leg slash abdominal injury on her right side. Oh, I hate saying that out loud because that might not actually be the diagnosis. Regardless, she's been working through things, uh, and Mark Parsons did acknowledge him today and said that she would be touch and go regarding Sunday's game. Uh, let's go to first Thorne's question. In your, in your opinion, what would make the first Thorne's game of the season a successful outing? A win. Yep. Because I, I don't think that it's going to be so much about the performance in this game. I, I do think they're – I think – I assume coming out of this game we're going to hear Mark Parsons say – wasn't our best performance or, or something along those lines, or we can get better. This is yeah. not going to be the best thorns or the thorns you're going to see at the end of the season. So I, I think the goal in this is just go out there and get the, get a win. Yeah. And I think it's hard to s- imagine scenarios where 
they get a draw or they lose, but they play well and you can take a moral victory from it because Orlando changed coaches this offseason and there weren't a team that seriously competed for the playoffs last season. They could come out and be extremely better. They could come out and be at the same level. But given the uncertainties of it, and also just given the competition in the NWSL right now, I don't think it's un- unreasonable to say a win should be the standard here. And it's not the end of the world if they don't get a win either. Uh, it'd just be a little bit disappointing. Another question, uh, kind of deviating from the thorns a little bit, but not too much, because he explicitly asks, or he or she, uh, which thorn or thorns in particular caught your eye in the USA versus Australia match? I'm going to confess something to you here, Jamie. I don't take U.S. women's national team matches seriously at all. I don't watch them thinking who's performing good, who's performing poorly, because I just don't think it matters. I, I just don't. The level of experimentation that we see, even currently with Jill Ellis' teams, I, I don't know that there's a lot of valuable information to be taken from these things. And to the extent there's a lot of valuable information to be taken from them, I think it's a lot less valuable than NWSL games. So, Heath, I don't think your question is bad, and I don't think people should ignore these games. But when I'm making decisions as to how to use my time, filling it with all this information about women's national team games that just pile up and pile up and pile up, and they're played at with such low stakes all the time, it's not something I take really to heart. Well... I, I was impressed with Caitlin Ford, and I thought she scored a good goal. And I think she it's did. exciting not just to look at that game in particular, but look at her performance in the W League, look at where she's at, to see what the Thorns are potentially going to see from Caitlin Ford this year. Because it, it certainly seems like it's going to be a different level than we saw um, with her coming off the injury last season. That's a really good reminder, because I, I definitely feel the same way. I think even beyond the goal totals in the W League, physically she looks better and more confident. And she's... An incredibly, uh, a cr- incredibly problem-inducing player when she's physically at her best. And the goals she scored exhibited a confidence or exhibited that confidence. And I think that uh, you have now talked me into answering Heath's question a different way. Heath, yeah, I completely agree with Jamie. Um, <laughs> Caitlin Ford, out of all these little things that happened, caught my eye. I mean, it was great to see Lindsay Horan back in the lineup too, yeah. of course. But when you're looking for things as a Thorns fan to really identify from this game, I think Jamie hit it on the head. And I think we should definitely take that seriously. And I, I, don't, think, I don't think you should <laughs> let anybody tell you differently. <laughs> Jamie, your favorite part of the show, prediction time. We have multiple games to predict here. Maybe one day we'll start predicting T2 games too, but right now yes, we're going to... Especially st- if uh, <laughs> Timbers become less fun. Wow, I did not mean it like that, but you are <laughs> correct. Uh, let's go ahead and start with the Timbers first because they do play first chronologically. They're playing Saturday in Frisco, Texas against FC Dallas. Jamie, your scoreline prediction. I'm going with a 2-1 loss. For, the, for Dallas, you're predicting Dallas will lose? No, I'm predicting the Timbers are going to lose. They're fifth straight, and, and at that point, I'm going to actually have to look up what their uh, losing streak record in 2012 was. Um, I'm going to predict it's going to be close because the Timbers are going to change formation and put out a formation that's going to look more competitive, but there's no reason for me to have faith that the Timbers can get a result right now. Building off that last part, my prediction is going to be the Timbers, for the first time this year, allow fewer than two goals. <laughs> Uh, but I do envision a scenario here where that still could lead to a loss. Obviously, allowing fewer goals is better, and it makes it more likely that you are not <laughs> going to lose the game. But as we've talked about throughout this show, if the Timbers correct their defensive problems, well, that's only one checkbox off the list. A lot of things still need to happen, but I mean, as I've said, my feelings throughout the show, giving that central defense some kind of help to me is pri- one of the top priorities. Jamie, the second game. 
The one thing I'm going to prevent you from doing is actually predicting any kind of 2-1 scoreline here. <laughs> you predicted it in the Galaxy game. You predicted it for the Dallas game. It's it's a safe thing to predict when a team goes on the road 2-1. It's it's the the chalk scoreline. You can predict anything besides a 2-1. No. One. no. What? No, you don't get to change my you do not get to change my prediction. Because then I'll be so mad if I was right. I clearly didn't know your prediction ahead of time. What, what could you possibly be talking about? I'm Thorin's 2-1 win. So they're going to go on the road. It is going to be a 2-1 scoreline, but they are going to walk away with three points. And there will be three points in Portland. <laughs> well, my prediction is somewhat similar to the Timbers prediction in that I'm going to be making prediction regarding the defensive side of the game. And I'm going to say the Thorns, with as much attention as they've been paying to this during the preseason are going to be fully focused on keeping a clean sheet in Orlando. And I'm under no illusion as to how difficult that will be, being on the road against a team that does have significant offensive talents and will be motivated in their own right to correct what happened last year. But to be honest with you, it was just the best prediction I could come up with. <laughs> uh, it was also the most interesting one. So I'm going to stick with that. And Jamie, fantasy update. One of my favorite parts of the show because honestly, before every show, I'm reminded that these people that do the fantasy league and the people that ask us questions. Um, it's, it's a level of interaction that I actually didn't imagine when I started doing this show that you had people that were so, uh, so interested in the show or so involved in the show that they're willing to help us do this show every week by giving us questions, by taking part in this fantasy league. So this is one of my favorite parts of the show because these people are, they're part of the show. So what are the standings this week? Uh, in third place, we have Get Up, Stand Up for Your Rights, uh, United. Don't give up the fight, Xavier. <laughs> that's Xavier. Um, Mateo FC is in second place. That's Matt. And Real uh, Alisco. That's I, I, Alex. I'm trying. I love the pronunciations every I week. I am trying to get it right. Uh, you can correct me on Twitter, uh, and you, that's totally fine. I, I think you're making good progress. <laughs> I mean, you clearly are evolving it. That's great. <laughs> I am trying. Um, and that is all for this week. What, uh, what about Porkchop's part of the show? <laughs> he actually wasn't as loud as usual. This so is amazing. What people don't know is that almost every time we record, <laughs> we have to stop in the middle of it because Porkchop has just decided that he needs to go out in the middle of every show. This is the first time we've done a show and Porkchop hasn't had his Porkchop <laughs> yeah, break. He, he, he's learning about what it means to be a co-co-co-podcast host. Well, congratulations <laughs> to Porkchop on your evolution, too. This is this is a milestone. If, if Porkchop can evolve, maybe the Timbers can, too. <laughs> Porkchop changed his formation. Let's see if the Timbers can, too. Okay. Uh, that's all for this week. You can find us every week on Oregon Live, Stumptown Footy, and Timbers.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week... Take care.